I'd like for y'all to turn to Mark 7 in your Bibles, please. Matthew, Mark. It's the second book in the New Testament. By now, you're aware of what we're doing with Mark. We're, we're looking at the whole book of Mark, but we're not doing it verse by verse, okay? We're not going like from the beginning of chapter 1 all the way to the end of chapter 16. We're looking at these five themes, okay? These five threads that kind of run through the whole book of Mark and they tie all the stories together and these themes show us the heart of what Mark is doing. Mark is a gospel about discipleship. What does it look like to know and to understand Jesus as the Holy Son of God, as the promised Messiah, as the Lord and Savior of the world? What does it mean to follow this Jesus and to to do the things that Jesus did, to go where Jesus goes, and to think and to act and to talk just like Jesus. That's the heart of Mark. Mark is a discipleship gospel. Two weeks ago, we looked at how nobody could see in the book of Mark. Remember, everybody's blind. Nobody understands anything about Jesus. And what we came to notice is that until you see Jesus as a suffering and dying Messiah, you're really not seeing Jesus at all. Any understanding of Jesus, any following of Jesus that does not include suffering and death is incomplete. And then last week, remember, we looked at how everybody was afraid in Mark. Almost every page, somebody is scared of something. And what we noticed is that when the Messiah comes, we recognize him as the coming Lord, but we're afraid of the way he talks about suffering and death. That scares us. And so as we follow Jesus, we see that Jesus comes to his followers on the water in the middle of the storm to comfort them, to encourage them, to remind them, I am God and I'm with you. Remember, I'm in the boat with you. We're going to do this suffering and do this death together. And when we reach the other side, there you will see and experience my glory. Today, we're going to consider all the women in the Gospel of Mark. There are women on every page in the Gospel of Mark, at least a dozen different women who are prominently featured in some very important stories in Mark. Now, let me give you this disclaimer. There's nothing in Mark that helps us understand women, okay? It's not in there. You're not, I think that is beyond us. Solomon didn't even ask to be able to understand women. We know he did not understand women. I think that's impossible to understand women. Dave Barry once wrote, if a woman is given a choice between catching a fly ball and saving an infant's life, she'll choose to save the infant's life every time without even considering if there are runners on base. I mean, they don't even ask. I don't get that. Milton Burrow once said, the problem is that by the time you figure out how to read women, your library card's expired. So this is not going to help us understand women. Mark uses women in his stories to show us pictures of real, authentic discipleship to Jesus. Because in Mark, women are the only ones who get it. In Mark, the women are the only ones who understand. They see everything, and they're not afraid of anything. So Mark will contrast the men in his stories with the women, and the men always come off as faithless cowards. 
And the women always come off as very open, very receptive, very perceptive, like they understand. They see what's happening. And so in Mark, you don't want to be like the male disciples. You want to emulate the women. Okay, Ruth, help me now. So just look at, look at a few of these, okay? We'll, we'll just do a couple of these. You know how we're kind of doing that now. So the very first woman is in the very first chapter, right? This is Peter's mother-in-law. She's healed by Jesus right there in the middle of chapter 1. And after Jesus heals her, it says she served him. Diakonin is the Greek word there. She's a deacon. She's a servant. She is serving Jesus. So you've got a woman at the beginning, and then you've got women at the end. In Mark chapter 15, uh, at the cross, women are the only disciples at the cross. All the apostles and the male disciples had fled the night before, and we don't even see them again in the gospel of Mark. But these women are there. Three of them are named. And then verse 41, it says, many other women were also there. And along with Peter's mother-in-law, these are the only people in Mark's gospel who are said to have taken care of Jesus' needs. And so the women disciples are the last ones to leave the cross, and they're the first ones at the tomb. In fact, they're the only ones at the tomb. And they're the only followers of Jesus in Mark who are commanded to declare the good news of the resurrection. In Mark chapter 5, you've got this woman who'd been bleeding for 12 years. If I just touch his clothes, what incredible faith. And then you've got the Syrophoenician woman in chapter 7. We're going to come back to her in a minute. And then uh, Mark chapter 12, this widow, this poor widow, it says... And the story here is that Jesus is condemning the teachers of the law who pray and give in public to be seen and praised by the people. And these religious leaders, these men are so important and they'll do whatever it takes to hang on to their power and their position. And Jesus says in verse 40, they devour widows' houses. And then he points out one of these widows who gives everything she has to live on. The men in this story are only concerned about themselves, but this widow is the opposite picture of total sacrifice. She gave everything she had. Same thing with the woman who anoints Jesus in chapter 14. You've got Judas who's looking for an opportunity to sell Jesus to make money, and then you've got this woman who uses her money to honor Jesus. She's really the most commendable disciple in the whole gospel because she's the only one who understands the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection before it happens. And so all these women and a lot more in Mark, you've got these wonderful examples of faith and sacrifice and service. And Mark sets these women up against the religious leaders of the day and even against his own hand-picked apostles to show that a righteous relationship with God is based on His unmerited grace and favor through Jesus Christ. It doesn't have anything to do with gender or bloodlines or wealth or position or power. Jesus is creating a brand new community based on faith in Him. It's not based on biology or genealogy or geography. And He uses women in His stories to illustrate this. Now, one of my favorites is in Mark 7. That's where we're going to be this morning. Mark chapter 7. I'm going to start reading in verse 24. Please follow along. Verse 24. 
This is the word of the Lord. Jesus left that place. We don't know where that place is. I'm thinking it's Galilee, maybe Capernaum, because it says earlier he had entered a house. Maybe Capernaum, certainly Galilee. Jesus left that place and went to the vicinity of Tyre. He entered a house and did not want anyone to know it, yet he could not keep his presence secret. In fact, as soon as she heard about him, a woman whose little daughter was possessed by an evil spirit came and fell at his feet. The woman was a Greek born in Syrian Phoenicia. She begged Jesus to drive the demon out of her daughter. First, let the children eat all they want, he told her, for it is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to their dogs. Yes, Lord, she replied, but even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Then he told her, for such a reply, you may go. The demon has left your daughter. She went home and found her child lying on the bed and the demon gone. May God bless the reading of his word. There's two things, two things that I want us to notice and admire about this woman. The first thing is this woman's incredible tenacity, her dogged determination. There are so many things working against this lady, so many barriers between her and the healing that she needs for her daughter from Jesus Christ. The first thing, the obvious thing, is her gender. She is a woman in this patriarchal, male-dominated society. She has little, if any, rights whatsoever, but she still comes to Jesus. Her nationality is a problem. She's a bacon-loving Gentile from an idol-worshiping pagan country. She lives in the middle of the capital of Baal worship. That's going to be a problem for her when she's approaching Jesus, but she still approaches him. You've got Satan. He is definitely, obviously attacking her. He has possessed her daughter. Satan is taking control of this lady's family, but this woman keeps coming, and her timing is terrible. Her timing is working against her. Jesus has walked probably 35 miles from Capernaum to be left alone, right? The Bible says he tried to come in secret. He didn't go there to work. He went there to chill. But this lady keeps coming. Even when Jesus tells her straight up, no, you need to get in line. The timing is not right for you yet. It's not your turn. But this woman will not stop. I like to think of this woman the same way I think about Earl Campbell. Now, y'all hang on. Just go with me here for a second, okay? This next part of the sermon is especially geared towards anybody born before 1975. But do y'all know who Earl Campbell is? Okay, amen. Heisman Trophy winning running back for the University of Texas Longhorns, Hall of Fame running back for the Houston Oilers, right? Now, come on. We're in church. Why would you? Come on. Earl Campbell could not ever be stopped. I mean, tearaway jerseys, the whole deal, right? It would always take six or seven guys to bring Earl Campbell down. I mean, once he got close to the end zone, there was no stopping him. You know this about Earl Campbell, right? You remember this? Can you, can you go back and YouTube him? Not right now, but this afternoon. It's incredible watching Earl Campbell run. I remember Thanksgiving Day, 1979. These were my very impressionable years, okay? But I remember the Oilers 
ran all over the Cowboys that day. And Earl Campbell just had a phenomenal day, like 180 yards, three touchdowns. Oilers won that game 34-20, which disappointed me. But I remember right after the game, the Oilers coach, Bum Phillips, I remember him saying, I'd rather be Texas team than America's team any day of the week. I begrudgingly remember that I thought that was pretty cool. That was kind of a cool thing to say. But that's Earl Campbell, right? And I see this woman coming to Jesus in Mark 7, the same way Earl Campbell went to the end zone. There was nothing going to stop this woman from coming to Jesus. You know what I'm talking about? Like like a Harvey Martin clothesline. Boom, you're a woman. You don't have any rights. Or like a two-tall Jones slapped to the head, you know? Hey, you're a pagan. You're unclean. Get away from Jesus. And she just keeps coming. And Randy White grabs her by the legs, you know? That's what's happening here. And he says, you're, the timing's terrible. Jesus doesn't want to see you. you. You can't come to Jesus. Go away. And then two-tall Jones grabs her by the face mask. And he says, you, you're, you're, Jesus didn't come for you, right? He came for Israel. And then D.D. Lewis grabs her around the, the shoulders and he says, uh, you're, you're the, the timing is, I mean, she's got all these things, right? And she just keeps coming. She just keeps coming and dragging it with her and pushing through. And she overcomes every obstacle and she breaks through every barrier. This woman clears every hurdle standing between her and the healing that she knows Jesus Christ can give to her and her daughter. If Earl Campbell's the Tyler Rose, she's the Tyre and Sidon Rose, okay? I mean, she's coming at him. And she says, yes, Lord, I know all these things, but please heal my daughter. Everybody says when God closes a door, he opens a window. Okay, probably. I agree with that. But sometimes, sometimes I firmly believe God closes a door because he wants to watch you smash through it. And I think that's what's happening here. Now, the Jews would call this chutzpah, right? You kind of have to at the beginning of it. But that's chutzpah, right? And that just means persistence, right? Intense determination, guts. I will not quit. I will not give up, right? I will not let go. Now, this word chutzpah, uh, it's kind of a kind of got a negative connotation to it now. It kind of means pushy or bossy. But you, you say chutzpah to a Jew, and that just means determination. That means persistence. It's a synonym for faith. This is faith. See, faith in the Bible is never, that makes sense to me, and so I'm going to trust it. Or I understand this. And so now I'm going to believe it. That's not what faith is in the Bible. In the Bible, faith is chutzpah, right? I'm going to latch onto this thing and I will not let go no matter what. That's faith. The same way Abraham held on to the promises of God and kept reminding God about those promises. The same way Moses and Joshua kept going even when it looked like all was lost. The same chutzpah, the same faith that those three little boys showed in that fiery furnace. Remember, our God is able to save us. And even if he doesn't, we will never bow down to your idols or worship your images. That's faith. That's chutzpah. And so I would say this morning, I would ask you, what are you battling right now? 
What are the forces? What are the circumstances? Who are the people in your life who are opposing you, are standing in the way between you and a saving relationship with Jesus Christ? What's pushing you back? Who's holding you down? And the big question is, why are you letting them? Is it sin? Is it a past sin? Is it a persistent sin that just won't quit? Is it guilt? What's keeping you from receiving the forgiveness and the grace of God through Christ? What's keeping you from that righteous relationship with the Lord? Are other Christians trying to tackle you as you try to take that next step with the Lord? What's keeping you away from God? Maybe, maybe you feel like God himself is telling you no right now. You remember when Peter's walking on the water? Remember this story? He's walking on the water with Jesus, and then he starts to look around at the wind and the waves, and he sees why he's not supposed to be walking on the water, and he sees all the evidence for why he can't walk on the water, and he falls, and he starts to sink and drown. Jesus pulls him up, and the Greek word that Jesus says to Peter is oligopistoi, which means little of faith. He's not asking Peter, why'd you stop believing? Peter never stopped believing. He's looking at Jesus. He's standing right there on the water. Jesus' question is, why'd you give up? Why did you quit? That's what Jesus is asking here. And I think that's a question for all of us today. Why did you quit? I will not let go of God no matter what. Hard faith. Stubborn faith. This is Paul kind of faith, right? Philippians 3, I press on to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. One thing I do, one thing, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead, I press on toward the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Church, this is persistent faith. This is enduring faith. Faith, 1 Timothy chapter 6, fight the good fight of the faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called when you made your good confession. I don't care what it feels like. I will not let go. I don't care who's standing in the way. I will not be stopped I don't care if everything falls completely apart around me. God is my Father, Jesus is my Lord, and I will keep coming. Tenacity. The second thing that I believe Mark wants us to see in this woman is her genuine humility. Man, the way Jesus talks to her, this throws us, doesn't it? It's a little weird. Listen to Jesus, verse 27. First, let the children eat what they want. Let the children eat all they want. For it is not right to take the children's bread and give it to their dogs. Well, that's just rude, <laughs> you know? And it's okay for Jesus to be rude to Pharisees and scribes. We, we expect that, you know? We, we actually kind of cheer that, you know? When we read these harsh words from Jesus to the, to the Sadducees and the teachers of the law, we're like, yeah, let them have it, Lord. Those legalistic bullies, give it to them, God, you know, till we realize he's talking to us and we're like, oh, well, 
crud, you know. But it's not like our Lord to be so rude to this woman. She's just coming to him for help. This doesn't make sense. This, this is offensive to us. And so, you know, we try to fix it. We'll, we'll say things like, well, we, we don't know Jesus' tone of voice. You know, maybe he winked at her when he said it. Maybe he was just being playful with her. I've heard some people go into the Greek text, you know. Well, if you look at this closely, this word for dog, sometimes it was used uh, to mean like a domesticated little small household pet. He wasn't calling this lady an ugly, mangy, dirty dog in the street. He was referring to her as like a little lap dog in the house. Listen, I don't care how you cut it. He calls her and people like her dogs. And I don't know anybody in any culture, any time, any place, anywhere in history that would Receive that as, as some term of endearment. Jesus calls her a dog. So here, here's what I think. This story is about crossing boundaries, okay? Look, look at where this story is. There's a reason that Mark puts this story here. Look at the end of chapter 6. Jesus feeds 5,000 Jews in the Jewish desert. And then he gets into this debate with the Pharisees over what's clean and what's unclean. And what he teaches very clearly is that it's not what's uh, on the outside of a person, it's what's on the inside of a person that determines whether a person is clean or unclean. And right after that teaching, Jesus walks at least 35 miles into the heart of unclean Gentile territory, right into the middle of the center of the capital of Baal worship. Jezebel is from Tyre, right? This area represented generations of hostility against God's people. And Jesus' statement in verse 27 reaffirms God's plan for salvation. First to the Jews, then to the Greek. This story is the then. This is it right here. This is the point through Jesus at which now everybody's in. No more boundaries, no more distinctions. Jew and Greek, male and female, rich and poor. God in Christ is coming for everybody. And church, that was always the plan. That was always the goal of God's covenant, going all the way back to the promises he made Abraham in Genesis 12 and 15. I will make you a great nation. I will bless you abundantly. And I will bless all peoples of the whole world through you. And so... This is where Jesus reminds us of the order, first Jew, then Greek, and then he ushers in the kingdom of God. Look at this. Next thing he does, he heals this pagan Gentile in this pagan Gentile land. And notice, this lady is the only person in the entire book of Mark who calls Jesus Lord. She declares him Lord, Lord, King, Ruler. Jesus Christ is said to be the Lord of the Gentiles in the Gentile land. That is significant right here. And then right after this, he goes to the Decapolis, these 10 pagan Gentile cities on the east side of Galilee, and he heals them. And then he feeds 4,000 Gentiles in the Gentile desert. Mark is showing us that now through Jesus, God's salvation is for everybody in the world. This woman is the hinge that holds the door of salvation open to everybody. The power of the kingdom of God is now for all people. You do not set limits anymore on the universal reach of God's love and grace. The gift is great. We praise God for his indescribable gift. Can I get, an am Can I get like 14 amens on that at least? We praise God. 
for his indescribable gift. But now let's zoom in on this woman's humility. When Jesus calls her a dog, she doesn't argue with him. Did you pick up on that? She doesn't push back. She says, yes, I know. Please heal my daughter. Jesus tells her she belongs at the back of the line, and she says, yes, I know. I don't deserve to be at the same table with you, Lord, but please give me one crumb of your grace. She gets it. She knows. She comes to Christ completely empty-handed. She has no merit. She has no standing. She has no status. She has no rights. She has nothing to commend herself to Jesus, just like you, just like me. She is in no way of God's, uh, she's, she's in no way deserving of God's mercy or his healing, just like you, just like me. She doesn't take offense. She doesn't assert her rights. She doesn't argue for equal treatment. She gives us the exact opposite of the attitudes that we see and hear all around us every day. I deserve this. You owe me that. She doesn't argue that her case is some exception. She doesn't lobby for special privileges. How many times have you heard, I'm not going to be disrespected. You're going to hear from my attorneys. No, none of that with her. She completely accepts Jesus' judgment of her, and she bows down before him as the helpless beggar she is. She's not saying, Lord, give me what I need on the basis of my goodness. She's saying, Lord, give me what I absolutely don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. 500 years ago, it was this woman, it was this story that compelled Martin Luther to write, you are more wicked and evil than you could ever imagine, and you're more loved and accepted by God than you could ever dare to hope. Amen. Pride. Pride is what separates us from God. Augustine said, pride is what turned angels into devils. Pride causes us to walk away from Jesus, to, to thumb our noses at a God who insists that we are unworthy in every way. I'm not a dog. I am not powerless. I am not incapable. I'm not undeserving. Would he devote that sacred head for such a one as I? We've changed the word. We've changed the word in that song. Have you noticed that? I'm not a worm. I'm not going to sing that. Just as I am. Without one plea. Not one. Only his blood that saves me. And his invitation to me to come to him. That's all. Just as I am without one plea. That's all I've got. Just as I am, poor, wretched, blind. Are you kidding me? No, that's, that's right. That's exactly right. Without one plea, oh, Lamb of God, I'm coming. I come. Our Lord Jesus never, ever sent anybody away from him empty. 
except people who are already full of themselves. In Mark chapter 10, Jesus says, Let the little children come to me and do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. I tell you the truth, anyone who will not receive the kingdom of God like a little child will never enter it. Jesus tells this Phoenician woman she's not one of the children. And she says, I know. I know. I don't deserve to be in the same house with you, much less eating dinner with you at the same table. But please, Lord, give me just a crumb of your mercy and grace. She gets it. She understands her condition as she comes to Jesus, powerless, poor, needy, dead, just like you, just like me. She accepts that she's unacceptable, just like you and me. When we come to God, church, we do so in humility. That's been a requirement for discipleship from the very beginning. Second Chronicles 7, if my people will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, then I will hear and I will forgive their sin. The Psalms say, Lord, you give grace to the humble. You save the humble. Peter and James, humble yourselves in the sight of the Lord. In the scriptures, humility always goes hand in hand with faith and righteousness and wisdom and the fear of the Lord, and salvation. Over and over again, Jesus says, those who humble themselves will be exalted. Jesus himself says, I am gentle and I am humble in heart. Philippians 2 says, our Lord Jesus humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God exalted him to the highest place. Humility and faith. I believe this woman is the perfect model of what it means to bow low and submit to the Lord and to keep on, to grab on and to hang on and to not let go. I will trust in him no matter what. So I'll ask it again. Is there anything in your life right now separating you from God? Is it sin? Is it a past sin? Is it maybe a persistent sin that won't stop? Is it guilt? Is it somebody in your family? Is it somebody in the church? It can happen. Is it pride? What is it? What is keeping you from receiving the forgiveness and the healing that only God through Christ can give? And then the follow-up question, why are you letting it? Why are you letting it? Just as I am. Without one plea. I got nothing, Lord. But I'm coming. I'd like to ask our elders and ministers and their spouses, would y'all... Would y'all get up right now and just kind of spread out around the gym? Because we'd like to offer a time of invitation. That's what this is. I want you to hear the invitation from the Gospel of Mark. To come to Jesus just as you are. 
I know you got a lot going on in your life. I know you think your life is a mess. I would probably agree if I could hear half your stories. That's a mess. If you're not right with the Lord today, don't leave here. Don't go to lunch and not be right with the Lord. And as you're trying to find your way to an elder or a minister right now, it might feel like half the church is tackling you on your way up. Keep coming. Keep coming. You know what the answer is. The Bible says you confess, you repent, you ask for the prayers of the church, and you start over with the Lord. If you've never been baptized, don't go to lunch and not be washed in the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus. Make things right today. We'd be honored to pray with you today. So find one of us. Find somebody in your row. But let's make things right with God. Because church, we got nothing. We're empty-handed. We got nothing. But we have the grace and the mercy of our God through Jesus Christ. Just as I am, without one plea. Just your blood and your invitation. Let's stand together, church. Let's sing. Just